Well, let's turn our attention now to God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, Romans 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 2. Uh, and uh, my outline is two points. The first point is consecration. That's verse 1, and I'm going to touch on that because we've already looked at verse 1 in some detail a couple of weeks ago. So consecration, and the second point is transformation. We're going to look a little bit more in depth at, at verse 2 of Romans 12, 1 and 2, which says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, change is something I think we all desire in our lives. There are certainly uh, issues that we have problems that we have, sins that we, with which we struggle, that we'd like to see change. And if you're like me, you, know, you get to a certain point where there's this, this, the same problems you keep having over and over again. You struggle to, to have a real change in life. The Bible holds out the wonderful promise of change to us. That God can take a sinful human being, such as we are, and transform us, renew us, make us new creations in Christ. And that's wonderful news for us. Strict willpower and, and a gumption will not bring lasting change in our lives. But in these verses before us, what we have held out for us is true, deep, God-initiated, God-wrought change in our lives. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, of course, is a transition in the book of Romans. As in many of Paul's letters, the majority of Paul's letters, he spends a great deal of time speaking of the indicatives of the faith, you know, truths he's laying out, explaining things in detail. Of course, Romans is one of the most detailed of his letters, laying out the gospel in the first 11 chapters and all that God does to save sinful people such as we are. And then here in Chapters 12, like most of Paul's letters, you have this transition into more practical application of these truths. And so verse 1 and 2 of chapter 12 is a very important couple of verses because they succinctly give a pattern of, of a living as followers of Jesus. Everybody, in my opinion, should memorize Romans 12, 1 and 2 because they are so vital so living the Christian life and growing as Christians and tells us, first of all, how we are to be consecrated to the Lord and second of all, how we are transformed by the gospel. Well, let's look first at verse 1 here briefly since we've already looked at it in some detail a couple of weeks ago. The first thing Paul tells us to do as Christians is to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And he tells us that this is a reasonable or logical act of worship. Spiritual in the sense that it's, it's something inward as we consider God and his mercies. It's something that we uh, uh, think about, something that we come to terms with in our heart. And we present ourselves 
in view of all of God's mercies, as living sacrifices. It's an act of worship. It means that we think God is worthwhile and, uh, and he is worthy to be followed and loved and worshipped. And Paul here uh, means this. When one considers how merciful God has been, that he, you know, he's laid this out in Romans 1 through 11, rehearsing all of God's mercies towards us, then the only response that is fitting to all that God has done for us is a complete consecration and devotion to God, to give ourselves to him, to sacrifice ourselves for him. It means to be completely at God's disposal. And that's what you do with a sacrifice. You're giving it to the Lord. It's completely at his disposal. It is completely an act of worship on our part to, to bring a sacrifice to the Lord. And he's telling us to sacrifice ourselves, to bring ourselves to the Lord, to consecrate ourselves, to give ourselves to him. Now in the Old Testament, of course, uh, they had these burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, where they, uh, the, the worshiper brought uh, a valuable uh, uh, part of their flock to the Lord, and that burnt offering had to be without defect, holy and without blemish. Now, when you had a, a sheep or a lamb or a bull without blemish, that would be a, a very, very expensive animal. It would be better than the rest. It's not one of the leftovers or one that you could spare or one that you wanted to get rid of. It was the very best of the best, and that's what, what the worshipers brought, an expensive, grade-A animal. And when you sacrifice such an animal to God, it demonstrates that all you had was at God's disposal. Your very best was at God's disposal. You didn't give God your leftovers. The sacrifice was always burnt totally. It was completely burnt up on, uh, for God. It represented complete consecration, complete devotion to God. So for us, to be a living sacrifice means to put ourselves fully at God's disposal. That means, first of all, to be willing to obey God in anything he says in any area of life. To be completely committed to saying, yes, Lord, whatever you would have me to do, I will do. Whatever you would have me refrain from, I will refrain from. And it also means to be willing to thank God for anything he sends into my life. Because if we're completely at God's disposal, we'll say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. That's what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. To whatever God you bring into my life, it is your will, and I submit to that. To put ourselves completely in God's hands. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. And he notes there uh, that we, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, which is kind of an interesting way to put it, to sacrifice our bodies, which doesn't mean that we need to stick a knife in our heart or anything morbid like that or to actually physically sacrifice ourselves uh, like you would a burnt offering, but it means that we are to present our bodies, not just our minds and our hearts, and that's true as well, but our actions. Our complete devotion to God must be lived out in the practical details of life, in everything that we do. It should be living. It should be as we live in our bodies and what we do, not just what we do in the privacy of our own thoughts and our own hearts. You know, 
people say that all the time. You know, you know my, my, my religion is a personal thing. Well, here it says it's a very public thing. Something that's to be lived out with your body in public for all to see. And that's what it means to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, to be consecrated to the Lord. Now he goes further because verse 1 and verse 2 go together. And that's what we want to dwell on a little bit more today is the conse- not the consecration part, but the transformation part. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in verse 2, we're told how to change. And there is a negative and a positive side to being transformed, we see here. And then we see its effects as well. So three things under transformation. Negative, positive, and the effect of this. First, negatively, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. And the Greek word conformed here includes the word scheme. Uh, A scheme or a pattern uh, or uh, a, a form. That's what the word means. The scheme or form or pattern of the world is what Christians are called to avoid. We shouldn't be shaped by the world and its values, its attitudes, and its behaviors. We should not copy the behavior and customs of the world. We should not adopt the values that the world puts forth. J.B. Phillips in his translation says, don't be squeezed into the mold of this world. That's That's a good way to express it. Now he talks about this world, and that's, that's important to know. What does he mean by this world? And what he means when he says this world is the system of practices and standards associated with secular society. That is, society divorced from God and his laws. The world's system, the world's standards, the world's values. Now there are times and We can see examples in the newspapers where our culture, our society, our world, this world in which we live, tries to pressure and force Christians violently into its mold. We've seen that, for example, in the many cases where Christians have declined to participate in homosexual marriages and litigation has ensued and people have lost their businesses. They've been shut down because they held to a biblical view that homosexuality is a sin. So there are occasions when the world or our society tries to force its unbelief, its unbiblical beliefs on Christians. And we see that increasing in our day and time. But more commonly, more commonly what we face from the world is a constant, prolonged, daily pressure to conform and mold. It slowly erodes away uh, our own thoughts and it places its thoughts in there or makes us make our thoughts the thoughts of the world that we adopt those things. We're influenced constantly through the media, for example. Television, films, music, the news... 
We're becoming more aware of the news these days that it's, it's got a slant or a bias. It doesn't matter if it's a conservative one or a liberal news outlet. They have an agenda and they're trying to get you to think like they're thinking, to embrace the things that they're thinking. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. And then we have social media today, like never before. Facebook uh, and other things, Instagram, Snapchat, things of that nature, that where the world comes in and its message hits us day after day after day. Multiple outlets and the world's values are espoused there. So we face that battle on a daily basis, and, and we may not even be aware of it, that we're being bombarded by it. You know, the, the, when you really stop and think about, you know, we're going through this time with, when there's a lot of exposure of sexual misconduct in the news. And have you ever really stopped and thought about all the ways on a daily basis we are pushed, sex is pushed on us in an unbiblical, ungodly way through all the outlets? Even when you read a story in the news, on a news website, uh, of misconduct by somebody like Harvey Weinstein. You're, you have ads all around that are promoting sexual misconduct. You know, you're promoting the very thing you're condemning in the article. It's completely mixed up. But it's just another example of how the world bombards us with this message that we may not even be aware of, but it's there. So we have these worldly values that are constantly informing us but Christians are called to follow the values of another world, another kingdom, while we live in this world. Christians are in the world, but they're not of the world. Christ has ushered in a new age. Of course, it's not yet fully realized. But Christ is a new age is being broken into this current age. A new kingdom is being ushered in. It's not yet fully realized, but it has dawned on Christians. And so we are to live in light of this new age, this new kingdom, Christ's kingdom, and follow its values, not the world's values. The values of Jesus' world, his kingdom, are often and usually in conflict with the world's values. For example, we can look at the Sermon on the Mount and see that the values of Christ's kingdom are radically different than the world's. Let's look at the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now nobody in our culture would say that you're blessed if you're poor. Doesn't matter which way it is, whether it's physical, especially not physical, because we're all about materialism and consumerism. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. These are not values you're going to get on the, the latest number one sitcom, for example. Or blessed are those who are persecuted. You know, the world would never say these things. This is upside down from the world. It's the values of Christ's kingdom. And the values of Christ's kingdom are often different than the values of the world. We face a number of things in our particular world in which we live in our Western American world, consumerism, materialism, radical individualism. These are values of the world, but they're not Christian values. 
We need to re- recognize what, the value, what, what are the values the world is trying to push on us and to put Christ's values up against that. Of course, this last uh, couple of days have been big shopping days, speaking of consumerism and materialism. I just saw an article that uh, said the, that online, just ordering things online on Thanksgiving and Black Friday exceeded any other year by a billion dollars. So that's amazing. There were moments where consumers were spending as much as $1 million per minute online buying things on Thanksgiving and Black Friday. The total amount spent on those two days was $7.9 billion. That's just online. That's not people who actually went out to the stores and bought things. So you see, our culture has a problem with spending money on stuff. You know, and that's, everything revolves around that. You think of even our sports. It's all about the money, and it's all about the advertising. It's all about television deals, and that all revolves around advertising. That's where the money is. Super Bowl ads, they're a million dollars for 30 seconds or something like that, something obscene. But they'll make all that money back because consumers, we're we're driven to buy, buy, buy things we don't need. That's just one example. You know, the, the, the values of Christ's kingdom when it comes to money are radically different than that. And Jesus has a lot to say about money and how we spend our resources. Well, that's just one example, and we don't have time to look into all the many different ways, but we need to be doing that on a regular basis. Christianity is to be countercultural. We're supposed to be riding against the flow of all this. Unlike this world, do not be conformed to the world. That's the negative side of this command. Now, there's a positive side. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, Paul says. So be transformed. It's the word for metamorphosis. It is the word metamorphosis in Greek. And we use that word, metamorphosis, for when a caterpillar changes into a butterfly. That's the the process that happens is metamorphosis. A complete and total change. You got this creepy looking worm, and then you got this beautiful butterfly. Radical transformation. And that's the kind of thing that God does with sinful people. He takes an ugly sinner and he's turning it into the image of Christ. And we'll one day make that complete. So metamorphosis, but notice that it is a passive verb. It's not an active verb. You're not transforming yourself. You're being transformed. Something is happening to you. You're not doing it to yourself. You as a Christian are not the one who transforms. Rather, the Christian is transformed. Sounds like he wants us to be actively engaged in something in which we are passive, which is kind of confusing. But here's what he means. Transformation is something that happens to Christians. After all, Paul says that Christians are a new creature in Christ, new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. But how it happens is not by trying to be transformed, it it happens by mind renewal, by renewing the mind. Be transformed, put yourself in position to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So mind renewal, 
is what's important. What is mind renewal? That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? We're not being brainwashed. That's not what we're talking about. I like what Sinclair Ferguson writes in his book, Devoted to God, which I commend to you. He says, in this case, the means by which life transformation takes place is the renewal of your mind. The instrument that God uses is the word of the gospel. The truth of the gospel informs and illumines our thinking. It thus begins to permeate our mindset and influence our dispositions. This, in turn, recalibrates our affections to love what we have now come to understand and to bow our wills in a new desire for conformity with God's will. This is how the gospel works. This is why Paul preached and wrote letters. He believed that God's word has power to renew minds and transform lives. As the greatness of the gospel begins to fill and expand our minds as we come to know God's Son through God's word, by God's spirit, a process of change takes place in our thinking, feeling, desiring, willing, and living. God's word and spirit work together and actively and powerfully change us. You think about all the things that we have that inform us. The world with its messages, through the media especially. And then we have God's word that comes and tells us something completely different. Something completely opposite than that. Which one are we going to listen to? The more we hear God's word, the more we'll listen to that. A lot of, a lot of the reason that Christians are not any different than the world is because we're not... Spending time, God's word. We're like people who are, whose stomachs have shrunk. We're not growing, you know. We, don't, we can't eat, we can't stand to eat a whole lot. The more we eat, you know, we can probably eat a lot now since it's after Thanksgiving. The stomach's been stretched out and we're ready to go. May the Lord make it like that for us spiritually, where we have a real taste for God's word. We want to hear more of it. We want to, to see it put into to effect in our lives. And what is that effect? He says, as we be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And what he means by that is, as we put God's word into practice, as we hear it and we say, okay, I've got a choice here, I can go the way of the world, or I can follow God's word. As we follow God's word, as we understand the gospel especially and apply it to our lives and, 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 and live in light of that truth, we find out that God is right. That that's the way that we were designed to live. We discover what his will is, that it is, that yes, God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. When we've divorced ourselves from God's word and we're just listening to the world, we think, well, that sounds great and we're going to go along with the world and, and we can just kind of be like the frog in the kettle and the hot water. You know, if, if you put a frog in boiling hot water, it'll jump out. But if you put it in room temperature water and then turn up the heat, it'll just sit there and, and, and boil. That's a picture of Christianity that is divorced from God's word. You're just in the world and boiling in the, in the, in the world's way of thinking and you adopt that and... and uh, you lose a taste for God's ways and you get a taste for the things of the world. The Bible says to taste and see that the Lord is good. And when you taste the things of God and really feed on those things, you're going to find out that it is really good and it's much better than anything the world has to offer. 
you will find out what his will is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want you to think I'll do a little experiment here in conclusion. Every day we make decisions. You know, you, you make decisions, and sometimes you don't even think about the decisions you make. You know, you just, we, we live our lives and we make certain decisions. Do you ever make a decision that is not self-interested? I don't think we do. I think we're always, even when I, for example, decide to wash the dishes. You know, you think, well, that's an unselfish act, you know, to voluntarily go and wash the dishes. Well, really, it's, it's a self-interested decision, isn't it? Because I would like to do something nice. Maybe I want to feel good about myself. Maybe I just want my wife to be happy. Uh, or maybe I just want the kitchen to be clean. It seems selfless on the outside, but there's self-interest there. And there always is. And I think if you thought about every decision you make, it probably has at its heart self-interest. We wouldn't make a decision that's not self-interested. Just think about that. Blaise Pascal, great French mathematician, philosopher, he said this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will never take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Because even the person who commits suicide thinks that he would be better off dead than alive. So all men are seeking happiness, self-interested. Now think about what if we approached every decision... Romans 12.1, consecrated to God, not self-interested, but God-interested. What, what is in God's best interest in this moment when I make this decision? That's being completely consecrated to God to say, what does God want in this moment? What does God want in this situation? That's, not a, you know, that's a question we probably don't think about as much as we should. But that's what verse 1 is saying. How do we know what God wants? Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of our mind. God has revealed his will in the word. And as we put it into practice, we'll find out, hey, that's, that's right. That's good. That's acceptable. That's perfect. That's what God wants. And really, the most self-interested thing that we can do is to be completely God-interested. And that's not a bad thing. Because God is interested in us. God is interested in you. God wants you to flourish. He's not giving you his word and his laws and anything in his word to cramp your style or steal your joy. Or, you know, like, like we were looking at Sunday school at the, the temptation of Adam and Eve. Satan said, oh, God's, you know, God doesn't have your best interest at heart. God just didn't want you to be like him. And we want that. See, God has our best interest at heart always, and we can put our trust in him if we just taste and see that the Lord is good. I want to encourage everybody to continue to, I mean, it's kind of like preaching to the choir, 
and you're preaching to the people who have shown up to hear God's word opened up. And that's what we need. We need to continuously hear God's word opened up. That's my job. And if I stop doing that, y'all can fire me. But, you know, my job is to open up, faithfully try to explain what God's word says so that we'll know it, feed on it. We also have opportunities for Bible studies, men's, women's, etc., children's. And, and we have opportunities to read the Bible on our own, to, to feed on God's word. And I want to encourage everybody to do that, to, em, to embrace that and to, to think about that, to, to look in the word at how God's values are different than the world's values. And let us be a countercultural place. I think people are looking for that in our world today and will be attracted to that. Well, may God give us grace to do so. May the Holy Spirit illuminate us so that we can see and understand and grasp these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word and just how of a great summation uh, and great direction for us in life and what we really need. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to consider these things, to give ourselves away to you, to be like Christ in that respect, not our will be done but yours, Lord. Uh, give us grace to do so, and Lord, forgive us for hanging on to the things of the world that we have grown to love uh, inordinately. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.